0: Hello and welcome to Rocket Talk, the Chore.com podcast. I am your host, Justin Landon, and let me tell you something, the last two weeks of book releases has been extremely good. Uh, I've been blown away by a lot of the titles that have been released the last couple of weeks, and two of those books were written by uh, today's guests, Kate Elliott and Emma Newman. Kate is the author of, I believe, 24 novels, her most recent of which are Court of Fives, which is a young adult book that came out this August, and Black Wolves, an epic fantasy that came out November 3rd. She also released a short story collection this year titled The Very Best of Kate Elliott. She lives in Hawaii. Welcome, Kate. Hi. Is 24 right? Did I count right?
1: You know what? I'm not sure. I think it's 24 solo
0: and 25 if you count the Golden Key, which I do, so 25. 25. That's like a. That seems like a big anniversary. <laughs> Emma Newman is the author of four novels, including the Split World series from Angry Robot Books. Her newest book, Planetfall, came out November 3rd from Ace Rock. She is also a professional audiobook narrator and co-writes and hosts the Hugo-nominated podcast Tea and Jeopardy, which uh, involves, obviously, tea and cake and mild peril, and singing chickens, which is not, does not seem to fit with the other three, but, you know, whatever. Her hobbies include dressmaking and role-playing games. Welcome, Emma. Hello, thank you. The singing chicken thing is one of my favorite uh, random items <laughs> of interest.
2: <laughs> there's um there's a story behind that actually how they came to be in the show. Um uh, I was at World Fantasy Con in Brighton and ended up going out for a meal with a few people that were there and um I don't know how it came up in the conversation but somehow I ended up doing an impromptu rendition of uh, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds kind of signature theme tune as a chicken and um Paul Cornell just started laughing so much he was weeping and um, it was all very fun and I came home afterwards and I told my husband about it and he said, we should have singing chickens in Tea and Jeopardy and I was like, no, that is too silly, it's silly enough, it's very whimsical, it's very silly, we don't need to go to that level of silly and he badgered me and badgered me until I finally caved and now obviously it's one of the most um, popular aspects of the show. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry, could I ask you to, if you don't want to, that's fine, but could I ask you to do that quick War
2: of the Worlds singing? <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad this is an audio because I'm so red right now. Okay. Um. That's, yeah. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> does, does Mr. Newman join you in the chicken singing or is this you solo?
2: We both do it and um, I have to kind of shield um like between us because we stand at the same microphone to record it and I have to look away and keep my hand up because he gets so into it he kind of like emotes with it like facial features and he dances a little bit when he when it's a tune he knows and I can't look at him because I just dissolve into hysterical laughter so if we want to get it in you know more than or less than 10 takes then uh, I have to make sure I don't ever see him whilst we're chickenizing something so I, I wanna, can I
1: follow up what you just said with a question? You said you stand at the microphone because, except for today, all my previous podcasts, I've done standing, which I prefer. But do you do that as a professional? With professional, like, that, that, that standing is better for the, uh, whatever, the way?
2: Yeah, I, with all of the audiobooks, save the most recent that I've recorded, um, I've always stood. Um, and in the uh, studio when I went back they said look we had someone ask if they could sit down and uh, it seemed to work out okay so do you want to try it and I was like oh yes please because you know six hours a day standing up recording gets you know physically tiring as well as concentration wise tiring Um, but when I'm recording uh, interviews like this I'm sitting down but when um, I record stories at home yeah I usually do stand up I don't know if it's actually true that it, you know, improves the voice because of, um, I don't know, the diaphragm not being crushed or something. I don't know. But I often sit very, very straight, uh, much straighter. Um, It's true. Fascinating. Yeah. Thank you.
0: I would strongly suggest at some point that you auction off a video of the chickenizing. (laughs) Just because I feel like Peter's dynamic acting skills may may be entertaining. Maybe World Builders. Maybe World Builders is interested.
2: Oh, he's just he's just utterly adorable when he does it. It's really funny. And especially when he starts to dance as well, like these little chicken wings. Oh, like. <laughs> <laughs> Whether that will ever get online, I don't know.
0: <laughs> so uh, before we jump in here, another thing, I really want to give you credit, an immense amount of credit. So you've written a biography by gif or jif, depending on your pronunciation on your website. This is amazing. Why did you do this?
2: <laughs> um, I've fallen in love with I like to say gifs and I had to go back and record pickups for the most recent book I recorded because the audiobook company insisted on GIF and I was just twitching away. But yeah, um why did I do that? I dunno. I I think because I find it very difficult to take myself seriously enough to write a proper grown-up about page. And also, I have fallen in love with gifts. And I thought, well, maybe this would be a good compromise um, and kind of encourage me to update my about page, which needs updating again because of various events in the last month. So, yeah, it was um, something that was kind of half fun, half incentivization to uh, to actually make myself do it. I do have a grown-up version, which is like in the third person and is all proper-like, but um, I'd much prefer the GIF version.
0: Kate, do you think you could do a bio of your career by GIF? I could,
1: but I just feel like I wouldn't have time to search
0: appropriate GIFs, and I would totally think GIF that just doesn't. Well, uh, Black Wolves and Fall are out. Congratulations to you both. Uh, publishing moves so glacially slow. I remember talking at LUNCON about the cover for Black Wolves on a panel and then I read the final draft, like, I don't know, 10 months ago or something absurd like that, and it's just now available. Like, how do you manage this? I would go nuts. I think for me, because
1: I'm used to it, what happens is you just keep moving on with the next book. And what's weird is that by the time a book comes out, for instance, I've written another, written and completed another novel already, and this book seems almost, well, it's something I did last year. So I'm still excited about it, but it's almost like it's not that like I've forgotten it. It's just like like, oh yeah, that thing. Oh, I remember that. Um, with the YA, my YA debut Court of Fives that came out in August, it was two years Between when I sold the book and when the book came out, it was a full year between the last productions. I did the page proofs in June of 2014, and the book came out in August 2015. So by the time it came out, I hadn't even looked at it for a year. And and it is kind of weird. So it's like when the book comes out, it's not the freshest thing in your mind. The freshest thing in your mind is the book you're working on or that you've just finished that you can't tell anybody about yet because it's not going to come out for another year. So I guess you just adapt
2: couldn't agree with that more that is exactly what it's like and it is a really really sometimes difficult head shift when you suddenly have to start doing guest posts and interviews about the book that is one behind Um, because I've too have written another book and done many other things in between and when people ask you about what the book's about and things I think it can actually help that there is that distance because um, I don't know about you Kate but when I'm in the middle or have just finished a book I find it very very hard to talk about what it's about because it's I'm still in it so much I haven't got that distance to be able to talk about it in a way that um, encapsulates it concisely for somebody who wants me to tell them what the book is about so in some ways it can help but mostly it's massively mentally jarring.
1: One of the interesting things about when you're working on a book is because I do so much revision, I really can't work on a book because often I the book that goes into production won't be the book that I started with. Whereas once it's done, once it's out there, um, it is. And and I do find that maybe that distance gives you a little chance to talk about it in possibly a more coherent way.
0: I I invited you both on today in a lot of ways because your both these books do something that isn't all that common in genre fiction, and that is that both of your primary characters, in fact, really all of your characters in both cases, uh, are not young, um, and genre fiction has always seemingly had a fascination with youth, I think. Uh, would you agree with that, Kate? Kate? It- well, certainly in the United States, in the
1: U.S. culture and in the 20th century, there's a, you know, don't trust anyone over 30, uh, a sense that youth is what sells. Advertising does this all the time. Um, the only reason that they're having older people in ads now is because the baby boomers spend so much money. And and I see that. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. and And also, I think that Science fiction and fantasy are often about, like, pushing out, which is a thing that we associate with younger people, something that they do, in and in, in that whole. So I do think that we um, emphasize youth as something active and as something interesting, but actually looking back on things and having experience cre- can also create a really fascinating story that can't be told by a younger character.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think this is something that we see as a wider kind of societal problem and certainly in the UK on television the disappearance of women in particular over a certain age is absolutely appalling it's like women who are actresses can only be around as long as they're in their 20s then they kind of the numbers with, get whittled down and then it seems like women in their 50s there's only like one or two types of roles they can ever play which is a more universal problem anyway but even worse in that age group and then there's some kind of weird phenomena where There's a very, very, very small number who can then kind of come back once they're really old and then be celebrated as national treasures. And certainly with like newsreaders as well, older women are just kind of axed and you have male newsreaders who are much, much, much older who kind of go on forever. And yet as soon as women kind of lose the bloom of youth, it's like, oh, no, we don't want to look at you anymore. And it just feels like that kind of ripples through all media.
1: I, I absolutely agree. In the bloom of youth, then it becomes 30, 35, which mm. is, nothing. you know, when the average life expectancy for women is into the early 80s, 30, 30 35 is nothing. That's not even the first half, you know, that's less than the first half of a woman's life, and then the rest of it, she's like, no, we don't need to see you in public. I want to add quickly, one of the things I love, love about living in Hawaii is that Hawaii, in Polynesian cultures and East Asian cultures, but Polynesian cultures especially are what I call anti-cultures in which older women are really important to the way the society works. So in Hawaii, in the U.S., in the mainland, you know, you get over 35 and you start becoming invisible over 40, 45. That's it, right? But in mm-hmm. Hawaii, you become more important in a way because you could be somebody's auntie. You you could be my auntie's auntie. And then all of a sudden, all we all know the aunties talk to each other. And it's a completely different vibe, if you will, in Hawaii, which is one of the reasons I love living there.
2: Mm, That sounds wonderful. Yeah. That's that's one of the reasons why I've become quietly obsessed with Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries as a complete aside, is that, you know, how often do you see a woman in her mid-40s running around being kind of like a female James Bond being sexually active, empowered, and in charge of her own sexuality. Everything is on her terms. It's just the most refreshing thing to see ever. It's just marvelous. I can't think of many other shows which have a female lead within that age range um being so active I mean <laughs> in many in any age range really but yeah that's that's one of the things I love about it so much that it's celebrating her experience and her self-confidence and it just feels that you know as a woman. You know, I'm, I'm nudging 40 now and I'm just, I've just kind of figured my shit out. And now I kind of feel like the media and everything is expecting me to go out to pasture. And it's like, no, no, I've finally figured out what I'm supposed to be doing and, and I've got things to do. And it just seems a great shame that there are so many amazing women out there, amazing, talented women, uh, especially in like the visual arts and in acting and things like that who are just kind of brushed aside as, as, they become even more interesting and experienced and wonderful. wonderful.
1: Miss Fisher's murder mysteries, I love them, and exactly for that reason. And it is interesting that when women really start to get it together and to, to be able to own their competency, their experience, their sexuality, their confidence, that now all of a sudden we need to be shoved aside for someone less experienced, someone or. And, and nothing. That actually being a young woman is also fantastic, um, as you you know start to discover who you are. But we just don't celebrate and respect that entire range of a woman's life, and I think that's a really bad thing.
2: What? <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you mentioned the Miss Miss Fisher's uh, stories, I, I immediately thought of Murder She Wrote. I don't I don't know. Are you familiar with Murder She Wrote, Emma? Is that something that made yes. its way across the pond?
2: Oh, it did. and It was just constantly on television when I was a student. It was either um, Murder, She Wrote or this bizarre program called The Bush Tucker Man, which was just this bloke going around the Australian outback finding stuff to eat that was usually absolutely grotesque. And then he would do something where he'd either like cut it up or fry it or something and then take a bite and go, oh, it's not bad, actually. And that was always said after we ate anything <laughs> for years. But yeah, Murder, She Wrote. Yeah, that's a very good example. Um, but I think the thing with Miss Fisher's murder mysteries that really excites me is how sexually powerful she is. Yeah. It isn't, you know, the Miss Marple thing or the murder she wrote thing where it's a, an old, a much older woman. You know, she is going around, she is sharking the fit blokes and she is getting the fit blokes and she is shagging the fit blokes and it's absolutely splendid.
1: The idea that women can own their own sexuality, which has been a very, very problematic and even considered very dangerous for generations, centuries in West, the Western world. Uh, and and that as women get older, that it's not just when they're young and seem attractive to certain kinds of men, but as they get older, they continue to own and expand their own sense of their own sexuality. So the older, and that doesn't end when people get over 50 either, but we don't, we don't really see that. We rarely see that in shows at all, except to kind of make fun of it or think of it as a joke. And that's another reason, again, as Emma said, why Miss Fisher is so great, because she is in her 40s.
0: And as she ages, you can guess that she's not going to give up these things. Oh, so the reason I brought up Murder, She Wrote, was because I think it's actually an example of of the problem in a lot of ways, because Angela Lansbury's character is very safe. And she, uh, she doesn't do anything to sort of disrupt anybody's view of the world or anything like that. Or you reminded me when you started talking about uh, older women who were uh, lionized at some point, like... Judy Dench, for example, or Meryl Streep, for example, they're the only people that get to play those roles. <laughs> like, like, Judy Dench is guaranteed roles for the rest of her life, right?
1: That was one thing that was, well, one of the many things that I loved about Mad Max Fury Road is that late in the film that it introduces these older women, um, one of whom is in her 70s, and they're just it's, it's so rare that you would get to see women that age who aren't playing the senile aunt in the you know care home or you know the the doting grandmother but here they are these these hard women who who are survivors who are going to put their lives on the line to help these younger women in a way that has a lot to do with how we carry forward uh, from women to women as generations, and that's so rare to see that in any film. And then to see it in the kind of action adventure film that I love, but are always usually so dude heavy with one like chick with boobs, right? It, it was just it floored me. Um, I I love that film for that alone. Besides all the many other things I love it for.
2: Oh, I so need to see that film! I have failed. I haven't seen it yet, and it just sounds like it's the most amazing film ever.
1: Well, it's a two-hour car chase. That's all
2: it is. Yeah, yeah, with uh, amazing female characters by the sound of it, so it, I'm, I'm really looking forward yeah. to
0: it. We've kind of talked about a broader cultural context, but also within genre fiction in particular, and uh maybe more so with Kate's book being an epic fantasy, I think this is even more of a problem in Epic Fantasy than it is in other genres. Not to say it's not a problem in other genres, but epic fantasy by and large has always been about this young protagonist, this coming of age story and and i wonder like what we've lost in that whole genre as a result of that that so many of the stories have been really just that and the fact that you've now written one that is not that it seems exceptional
1: i think we've lost this really the sense of change and the sense of experience and the sense of seeing how lives work over a whole span of years. We do sometimes see things like someone who's old retelling the story of their youth, but again, it's usually they're retelling the story of their youth, Uh, (laughs) and I don't know. I think that, I think Americans in general have issues with this concept of where do we come from and, you know, what about the stories of our elders and do we listen to them? Indigenous cultures are much, in my experience um, and from my reading, are much more focused on what the elders have to tell us. In many cases, because of colonialism, the last store of knowledge resided in the elders and if they didn't pass it on to the youth, then the society would have vanished. And so it became important, as it becomes important to remember who you are. Um, and who, where you came from, you've got to gather that information. You have to value that information. And in a society where how much money can you spend in that new thing we could make profit on, suddenly that old stuff isn't, does, you know, it's kind of thrown away as not important because it's not bringing you any profit. So that would be my criticism of the kind of capitalism that functions as kind of profit-driven cultural enterprise that I kind of perceive in the U.S. And to me, that is not actually really a good, a uh, good underpinning for story.
2: I think. I think also just the loss of the value of the elderly. Full stop across all aspects of society. I'm thinking about my own grandmother and how, when I was younger, I didn't appreciate how much she knew and how how wise she is, and she's like this tiny, tiny woman. Um, and has got these huge, you know, over six feet tall sons and a massive sprawling family now. But she still feels like she holds it together. And I think that there's a kind of a starvation, I feel, within the stories that our culture is producing. That there are just so few that are about women, about the value that they have. Um, it's all so kind of male-centric in terms of, you know, the, the female characters in this story are therefore you know, love interests or the goal or the trophy or whatever, that we are missing out on so much other, um, so many other kinds of wisdom and so many other kinds of um, points of view. I mean, you say, what have we lost? But I feel also, I feel quite excited that, you know, that Kate has written this book. And now that we have this massive potential to, to move out into these areas and that, you know, I hope it's a massive, massive, massive commercial success so that somebody who has been counting somewhere will say, well, actually, maybe it isn't as we thought. Maybe there is room for all of these other stories. Because I think there's, there's so many other forces against us when we try to tell these different kinds of stories that it, it almost becomes like this self-fulfilling prophecy because of the way that society's gears are, are, are set up. It's, um, it feels like you're kind of pushing against so much just to get these stories out there.
1: I I, I totally agree and when you talked about the women being there in relation in their relationship to the men in so many of these stories and as you said, you know Usually the roles are the sex worker or the victim or the caretaker or the the bride And these are all roles that are defined by the men not by the women themselves But of course women have always had these lives But one of the problems that happens is that when people start reading if they become so accustomed to seeing women in these roles Then they begin to think these are the correct roles for women and then if they read women in other ways they're like, well, this is wrong. You know, why, yes. why are they doing this thing? When in fact, those are the experiences, and that's why we get these comments from people who say, like, well, but women don't really belong in epic fantasy because these are really stories about men. And it's like, do they think women didn't exist? Do they? Yeah. Do they think women didn't do every possible amazing thing historically? And, and speaking of your grandmother, you know, her experiences probably are amazing and yet we kind of discount those stories because they don't fit this really narrow view of what we think must be interesting and then when we discount those stories we lose them and that's and that is terrible and that is what we can do as writers is to say no these stories matter to be told and put them in the stories and that's you know that's one of the things i've tried to do my whole career is to put some new, to expand the range of what we consider to be worthwhile, interesting, important stories.
2: Mm, Definitely. There was a thing that's been flying around the internet this past week about the fact that um, Mozart had a sister who was equally talented. Did you see this? It was the first time that I've come across it and, you know, that in itself broke my heart, but she, uh, this article was talking about how she had equal billing with him as they toured as children, and yet in all of the kind of the retellings and the things that I've been taught, it was all him, this single, I had this image of this single male child on the huge piano stool, being this amazing pianist, and I never even knew about her. But what really, really broke my heart was the fact that there's evidence to suggest that she could have produced amazing work just as he did. She was schooled in composition and she was equally, if not perhaps more talented, according to some of the reviews of the time. But her father pulled her away from the circuit because it wasn't proper for a woman to do these things. And so she was just kind of shut away to go and be somebody's broodmare. and. It. I, I just want to burn it all down. It Here's makes her, me so angry.
1: I think it's in Virginia Woolf's A Room of Her Own, or A Room of One's Own, which is an essay written in, I don't know, I guess in the 1920s. Um, she talks about Shakespeare's sister, and, it, and it's speculative, but she says, what if Shakespeare's sister had, you know, had decided to walk to London to, because she wanted to write, and then she goes into all the terrible things that would have happened to her, and how that voice is lost to us. And I read this when I was in college, and it made a huge impression on me, this idea that women's voices over and over again get lost to us. And how terrible that is, because those are creative stories we'll never hear. Like Mozart's sister, Not who knows what she could have done over a longer period of time, but she just wasn't allowed. And it is why I think it's so important what we do. It's so important what all, you know, whoever is doing it, but to raise up these voices that are, whether they're of women or what, whether they're of marginalized people along any vector, how important it is to raise those stories up. I feel very strongly about
0: this. Me too. I, I just watched a film last night with my family, and it's Inside Out. Have either of you seen this?
2: I have. No, I haven't.
0: So the premise of it is that there are these, uh, that we all have little emotions living inside of us who control our brains, and each one of them is their own character. And there's, it's like disgust and anger and sadness and joy and and fear in, in this little girl's head. And over the course of the movie, right, they, These she gets depressed and they have to sort of get her out of it. But at the end of the film, spoilers, kind of, this, this kiosk that they all sit at to control her emotions quadruples in size because she's 11 at the point that this very, that the story is told. And then it expands, uh, when she completes this sort of journey that she has. And all of a sudden this emotional kiosk is, is quadrupled in size. And so I'm imagining as I was watching this film, I was thinking about what we were going to talk about today. And I thought one of the reasons, perhaps, that we see so many young characters is because they're more of a blank slate. A character of, a, of an age is harder to write, right? Perhaps there's a lot more layers to that character than there would be for somebody who is just coming of age.
2: I don't know. I think I think that's a, a dangerous generalization because all writers are different. And it may be that writers have written these things and they haven't been picked up because the market wasn't ready for it and so we're not exposed to it. So I, I think it's, it's something that we could never truly know. I think though, I couldn't have written Planetfall five years ago. And that, you know, is definitely, there's an element of maturation involved there. Perhaps there's an element of what we are exposed to in terms of what we consume has a great impact upon us as, as writers and creatives. And when there is overwhelmingly a bias towards the young. I, I wonder if there is a, a little voice in the back of our minds thinking, well, nobody will want to read about an older character. So I, I don't know if that's a conscious thing or an unconscious thing. Um, certainly when I was writing Ren, who's the protagonist of Planetfall, she's 70. I didn't think, yes, I'm going to sit down and write an older character. It just became very apparent that the story that I wanted to tell and the exploration of her character would be impossible for a younger character because there just isn't as much there so I wonder if the appeal of a younger character is that when there is less to Im- investigate and explore about them it forces you to emphasize and, and explore what is happening around them which lends itself more towards plot and adventure and action and things like that that they uh, are less introspective perhaps so I, th- I think there are lots and lots of different factors that could play into that
1: yeah I I tend to think that a writer who of any age can tackle anything if they want to really think deeply about it. It, They may or may not succeed, but that's true no matter what, what they're writing. One of the reasons, besides, as we already talked about, the overall cultural bias toward youth, um, in our, in our advertising and, and kind of media culture right now, is that I think youthful people have a more clear emotional journey, as, as, as I think we you both have said, that, you know, who am I, where am I going, and someone who is 70 knows who they are, and it's not that they can't change, but that that the stages of their changing aren't going to necessarily be as dramatic, unless there's some huge traumatic incident that splits their life apart, which you could also do, But but if you're not planning on them to change, then emotionally they may not seem as fraught. And I think a lot of our fiction right now is to some extent, in some cases, built around fraughtness, emotional fraughtness. So you don't really get, you you may not get that in the same way with an, with an older character who may be looking back. I, but I will say that with Black Wolves, I mean, one of the reasons I specifically chose, there are five point of view characters, two of them, one is 73 or 74, one is 59. And then there are three younger characters, and I and I needed that because part of what the story about is about is how this society has changed from sixty years ago. So I needed the people who had who had been young, who had experienced the society before, because the history and what we're told about the past and what we know about the past that we experienced when we were young, and and how. Not only how the history may be wrong, but also how our own memories may change um, to kind of justify ourselves or not. Um, so, And I couldn't do that with a young character. Can I just add really quickly that this idea of progress, that we're always getting towards something better, is another way in which we kind of say that, well, we don't need to talk or write about the past because if what's coming up is better, then that didn't matter anymore. We're We're escaping something that was worse. But we always need the past to t- understand where we are now
0: i want to touch on the other factor that you have in ren emma and that is that she is uh for to use to use a general term and i, I don't know how spoilery oh. it is no no
2: no don't spoil her i think i know the word you're going to say but please 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 don't use it i've, I I've been talking about having The book on my on my um on
0: my iBooks and i haven't read it yet don't spoil me <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, so, it's, it's really hard to talk oh, about the book stop. without spoiling it. <laughs> so,
0: so I will just say that our the protagonist is neuroatypical.
2: Yes, I, I've been saying that she uh, suffers from an anxiety disorder.
0: Right. And when you talk about, uh, Kate brought up this idea of fraughtness, and I actually think that one of the ways that you introduced this, this fraughtness or this sense of internal conflict that perhaps we create in youth easier you've used this neuroatypicalness to create that fraughtness, which I think is interesting, and created a tremendous amount of personal tension and fear within this character that maybe wouldn't have been present in somebody her age uh, without.
2: Mm, yeah, I've never thought about it that way. Um, it definitely wasn't a conscious decision. I I knew that I wanted to explore somebody having the struggle that she does. But yeah, I've never thought about it that way. That's really cool. Thank you.
0: <laughs> but I would I would I would say that aged characters and and strong women characters just as rare is this idea of a character who is not uh, I don't want to use the term normal, but like uh, uh, you know on the on the standard baseline. We don't get people that are suffering from anxiety disorders very often.
2: I am very aware that I, I can't think of many books where this is the case. And I, I thought, well, the other day, maybe I should go on Twitter and say, I don't think there are any books or many books that do this so that everyone could tell me about the 10,000 books that have that I just haven't stumbled across yet. Um, but talking to people about this, pretty much everybody has been saying, oh, this is very unusual and this is something that I talk about in the real world when, or the the online world as an author, I made a conscious decision several years ago to be open about the fact that I suffer from an anxiety disorder and it's very different to Ren's. There are areas that overlap a little bit, but hers manifests in a very different way. But I wanted to talk about it and be more open because we are not, as a society, open enough about these things. And considering how common it is, uh, just across the population, um, for people to suffer from depression and anxiety, uh, as just two um, things to, to mention in particular, um, when you look at how that is portrayed within uh, books and movies and television shows, there is, on the one hand, a very small number that feature them. And a lot of the ones that do are really quite frustratingly, uh, I don't want to say wrong, but wrong. Uh, you know they they make light of things that are actually really destructive and devastating for people, and there's a stigma attached to mental illness that I really, really dislike and wanted to kind of show that you can still find a way to deal with this and to uh, that you can still be kind of highly functional. Whilst dealing with these things and society, it seems wants to say, well, no, if you're ill, you're kind of over there or you've got depression where well, you obviously can't have a job because you, you, you must be so broken. You can't do these things or, or oh, you're a very anxious person. Well, you know, you, you can't handle life. And with Ren, I wanted to kind of explore how she is in some respects incredibly highly functioning she is very very clever and very analytical and she is um, a crucial member of the colony on the planet that they they live on um, but she is also very broken too and I wanted to look at the tension between those two things but yeah I, I don't think that mental illness is talked about enough in society full stop but also as a perhaps a knock-on effect of that is that it's not explored in our fiction enough and you know i I hope I hope that I've explored it sensitively and I've worked very, very, very hard on the the particular manifestation that I explore with her and, you know, consumed so many case studies and thought about it so deeply. And I, I just hope that I did it justice because it feels like there are so many um, things that I've consumed in television where it's, it's almost like a flippant thing and, and just riddled with misunderstanding. And yeah, it, it frustrates me.
1: You know, Emma, this is completely fascinating to me. Because I also have anxiety disorder and I've learned to how to deal with that on a day to day basis uh, with mostly with cognitive therapy. But whereas I have seen some efforts to deal with depression um, for good or for ill, I mean, well done or poorly done in fiction, I don't really know. I can't offhand think of any that deal with anxiety disorder. And what's even more interesting is, I don't think I've ever tried to write a character who had anxiety in any of my books. Or so uh, I'm fascinated by what you say, and I'm even more fascinated to read Planetfall now.
2: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was um, it was a really it was a really odd experience writing Planetfall because with the other books that I've written, um, they're all very much character-driven, um, but far more complex kind of plot-wise and world-wise and all this kind of stuff. With Planetfall, the idea of wanting to explore a character with this mental illness was there for a long, 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 long time before I had a setting for her or a plot or anything. It was very, very strange. So I just researched it and researched it and researched it and then came across some other things that suddenly made it all fall into place that oh, it was actually going to happen in science fiction. Oh, it's this it was a, like a surprise. But I'm glad that it turned out to fit with a science fiction thing because I feel that, you know, across a lot of literature, there, there are very few examples of, of people with anxiety disorders or characters with anxiety disorders. But I think also, you know, in science fiction, it's, it's kind of primarily the big concepts. And I wanted to put a character study at the centre of a science fiction novel. I mean, there are other you know obviously it's it's science fiction there are other big concepts in there but i wanted the emphasis to be on her and understanding her so i guess it was almost like a rebellious act <laughs> um but with the with writing about the anxiety disorder it was incredibly hard because she she doesn't suffer from exactly the same thing that i do but there are common elements as i mentioned and so sometimes it felt like I was, you know, reaching into my guts and pulling things out. And it was an incredibly uncomfortable and unpleasant experience in places um, writing about it. And and almost, I, I don't want to sound, you know, kind of stupid or, or like pretentious about this, but it, it felt almost frightening at some points that it, it felt like it wasn't quite me writing it. It was something that was coming from such a deep place. It was, yeah, it was really weird, but I, I'm glad, I'm glad that I, wrote about this and made it front and center in the novel for, for the reasons you know we're discussing now.
0: I think it's really interesting that we all know that the vast majority of the reading public is women. And we also know that things like anxiety and depression are way more prevalent than we talk about. And so as I'm imagining, like books that feature older characters or that feature people who are suffering from a myriad of disorders that we aren't seeing them because somebody somewhere is, not because some people aren't writing them, but because some editor is saying, nobody wants to read about this. This editor doesn't want to read about this. And it just makes me wonder if if we're chasing this idea of escapism within genre fiction as though people don't want to deal with their actual problems uh, in science and fiction and fantasy. And like, I don't think that's true. Um, I actually think it's quite the opposite. And our, and our reading population is, is, you know, I, all of us were reading genre fiction. We began, right, as teenagers. And like, I feel like sometimes we're still expected to read at the same capacity that we read at as teenagers, uh, within genre fiction, that, that we're not growing or searching for new and more challenging things. I don't know. Sometimes it feels that way, that, that there's this expectation that we're all still reading like, uh, escapist kids.
2: There's an interesting variable in all of this, which is about who is featured in lists of books that have come out because, you know, so often we see, hey, here's top 10 great sci-fis or here's, you know, the best of this year. And oh, look, there's, there's only one woman or there's only one writer of color and then everybody else. You know, it's, it's the same kind of person. And I wonder if there is, as we've been talking about before, that all, all of the cogs of society are geared towards telling the male story. And that I wonder if, something I'm, I'm very nervous about actually is that I know that there are massive negative modifiers that are going to be going against Planetfall being, you know, put on tables in bookshops. Um, In particular, in the UK, there is a terrible problem in sci-fi fantasy selections in bookshops where it's dominated by men. You know, there, there is literally we did a count up and across several stores and several tables. It was on average about 17 percent of the books on those tables were written by women and people of color. And it was just so, so upsetting and thinking, OK, well, is this book actually going to be seen? Is it going to be talked about? Is it going to or is it just going to be left out and easily pushed away off lists and, and things because of this, this dominant force um, which keeps us looking at and talking about the same kinds of books. Uh, I don't know how to fix that and I think there has been an amazing grassroots movement to change that online which I find incredibly heartening and exciting but I still haven't seen it permeate out into the wider culture and into you know the bookstores that I've still been going into and seeing nothing change yet and I hope that it will change and you know obviously we live as writers and as as genre people and as geeks we have you know a very very fast-moving vibrant online community and I'm hoping that it will gradually permeate out into the wider culture Um, But I'm not seeing it yet. So I wonder if it isn't just that we kind of all want those, or that people are saying you want all those kind of stories. It, It also feels like it's only those kind of stories that are talked about.
1: I have been around long enough and reading long enough that I have seen many fine women writers, and just speaking specifically of science fiction and fantasy, who have come, who have published fascinating novels, and and then yet now when we talk about you know the important fantasy novels of the last fifty years, they get just it's just they've vanished. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and again, it's it's exactly with you. I think we talk a lot about it, but there is a bit of an echo chamber sense in which who are, are people talking about it outside that, and we often talk about this idea that girls will read books about boys. But boys won't read books about girls. Often not because the boys wouldn't want to read books about girls, but because they're kind of told over and over in a society that they shouldn't want to. So you have parents, I think, um, the, uh, children's writer Shannon Hale, I think, has stories about, you know, parents saying to her, oh, my boy can't write, read that story. It's, it's about a, you know, a girl on the cover. Um, and because they're worried about, what would happen, Um, and that's a, that's a, that's that sense that somehow if boys, you don't want a boy to be like a girl because that would be him, like, descending in status, whereas it's okay for a girl to want to be like a boy because that would be her ascending in status, Um but I have, and I know Justin was going to ask me this question, so I'll just jump the queue here, Um, but I have a story about that with Black Wolves in terms of how we, uh, create invisibility for women. Um, Black Wolves, I mean, I specifically wrote it because I wanted to write an epic fantasy that had all my love for epic fantasy. I love epic fantasy, but also my criticism of epic fantasy in it. And part of that was what I really wanted to show how much women could be involved and how much you could pull women in and make them drivers of and engaged in a story of politics and war. Because they always have been, in historically, um, what that means is is that there's five point of view characters, three of whom are women, and women actually take up like sixty five to seventy five percent of uh, to seventy percent of the 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 textual time from their point of view in Black Wolf. So it's a very even. It's got a great dude cover. I love the dude cover, but like seventy percent of the point of view time is women, and there was a review in a major trade journal. Which, uh, and of course they don't have much space, but in this review, they, the reviewer mentions three characters, all men, two of whom are not even point of view characters. No women are mentioned. So if you read the book, if you read the review, you would think that this was a total dude book, right? And this is erasure, right? Yeah. And, I, now, and, and I have to say that this reviewer really didn't like the book either. It, which is cool. I I don't like books too sometimes. I, I love black wolves, but you know what I mean, but I don't like books too. So I get that, right? But I did something I never do. I wrote to the editor of Publishers Weekly, the person who edits that set of reviews, because to me, this is part of the larger problem. And I said, listen, I get that the reviewer didn't like the book and that's cool. That's how it should be. But the but what's going on here is erasure because because it's 70% female point of view and none were mentioned. And I went and checked some reviews of books written by men that I knew had secondary characters' point of views who were female. And it seemed like all the fact, if a man wrote a book and there was a woman point of view in it, it seems that would be mentioned even in these short Publishers Weekly reviews. Whereas in my book, the women were all left out. And I said, you know... The, the reviewer doesn't have to like the book, but this is a trade journal and they know that librarians, booksellers, and readers who are looking for epic fantasy that centers women's lives and women's perspectives as well as men's, they're, they're looking for books like this and they're not gonna know this is that book because the women have been erased. And that's how people don't find these things and that's how they, we keep coming back to the these male-centered story-selling, because we're used to that and we talk about that. And if you erase the presence of women or the, you know, what I was trying to do with Black Wolves, then it's not going to reach, you know, the guys who don't want to read that story aren't going to read it, which is fine, but it's not going to reach the people who want it. And who need it. And who need it, absolutely. Who do need it.
2: Yeah, because we are starved. We are starved of these things. Did you get a response?
1: Yes, the editor said, thank you for bringing this to my attention. May I show this email to the reviewer? And I said, yes, that's what I was hoping for. Nothing will happen with that review. And, and, but just, it's just, this is like one step at a time. We have to keep reminding people that, that there's a huge audience. I do think there is a huge audience out there. Maybe sometimes people don't know it because they haven't seen it. They haven't had the chance to get it because they can't find it. I think, as you said, people need it. I, I have gotten letters. I'm sure you have gotten letters, but I have gotten letters from people who have said, oh, thank you for writing X kind of story. I read this at a time when it was so important to me to understand that I was okay or that I would be okay. And it's a big responsibility, and it's also uh, it's kind of daunting, and but also really deeply... I don't, I don't know what word I'm looking for. It's, it's, the, this, it's like you have this responsibility as, as a creator uh, when you realize how your stories can touch people.
0: Well, you did jump, jump me on my question. I was ready <laughs> with that one. But uh, but you answered it better than I could have hoped for. So <laughs> I certainly appreciate having you both on today. Uh, we've gone about uh, about an hour now.
2: I could rage about the patriarchy till you know I go hoarse, but <laughs> it's not necessarily what you want to discuss any further. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll come back, and Emma, you can have a chance to rage against the patriarchy. Anyway, I, I would highly recommend folks go out and pick up uh, Black Wolves and Planet Fall. They were out on November third. Anybody can get them anywhere, and uh, I appreciate you both coming on today to talk to me
2: well thank you for inviting me along it's been a pleasure
1: yeah thank you so much justin and emma
0: this has been rocket talk